Welcome to Dave's Psychology Lectures from Algoma University. I'm Dave Broadbeck. The following lecture is from uh, Psychology 4006. Uh, it's a new one for everybody out there. Uh, History of Psychology. Hope you enjoy it. Um, so today we talked about medieval times, uh, and it's a period in history, of course, best described in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, one of my favorite lines in that is the one person says, "I don't think a, a woman coming out of a lake and, 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 and removing a sword from a stone is a good way to form a representative Dudley." Uh, <laughs> find that kind of hilarious. Um, but first, of course, we have to mention the Romans because the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, the Medieval period, and they aren't really Dark Ages. That, that's a, it's a misnomer. There was learning going on. It was just really, really slow. And remember, this is all in the West. Okay, This is all in Europe. In the Middle East and in the Far East, it's not so much like that. Okay, um, But basically, this all happens because of the Roman Empire its existence and then its lack thereof. Um, so the Roman period is basically the 7th century BC. Um, I should have put, I, I got to be consistent, to the BCE and A and CE or BC and AD, whatever. To 476, Rome falls in 476. The Western Roman Empire. Okay? The barbarians. Goths, Visigoths, Vandals. We get the word Vandal from a, a tribe of people that wrecked Rome called Vandals. Who are you? We're the Vandals. Oh, that doesn't bode well. <laughs> um, now, if you go back, looking at if you've taken Brendan Behavior with me or in a couple other courses, I'll, I'll mention Galen. And Galen was the first. Well, not the first. He's the most prominent Roman physician. He's actually, I believe he was Greek. Um, but he wrote about medicine. In fact, if you go to medical school, you will take, you will read Galen in History of Medicine. Uh, he talks about how to take a pulse. He talks about, you know, he also talks about some cures. Some of them are actually sensible at work. Like, you get a blood, you get a cut to clot by putting crushed up spider webs on it. Because there's actually a clotting agent in, in a spider web. He didn't even know that, but they figured it out. Using honey as an antibiotic. Again, he didn't know about bugs, you know, uh, <laughs> not, uh, you know, bacteria. But they knew that it could help. He also figured out that the brain was the seat of behavior. He was, he was one of the things he did is he was like a, a, um, a physician to the gladiators, which means you have a lot of work, um, and you find it very quickly about head injuries. One of the myths about ancient Rome is that the gladiators, they were all fights to death. Very often, people were allowed to live. These people were famous athletes. They were mostly slaves, but they were still famous athletes. And usually, once they won enough, they were free. So it's the case that a lot of times, these guys would live, and they'd get patched up. And he was doing a lot of the patching. So he said there were four qualities, uh, cold, warm, dry, and moist. They were involved in the balance for health. A lot of people like the word moist. Uh, mental disorders were caused by an imbalance of these four humors. Well, you seem a little too moist. You must have an attention deficit disorder. Um, except saying that in Latin. And probably not using the term attention deficit disorder. Uh, he actually advocated for an early form of psychotherapy. In other words, a talking cure. Right? It's interesting. You don't think about that in ancient times. Everybody thinks that this is invented by Freud. Well, it's repopularized by him. But people have done this for years. You have to, one of the things you have to keep in mind, for the longest time, before Freud, you went and talked to your priest, or your rabbi, or your imam, or your uncle, or aunt, your wise uncle, right? And then those people all kind of disappear from regular life, and we end up having professional people who call counselors. But they're all doing roughly the same job. And the counselors have some training as well. Um, the Christian church actually assimilates a lot of Galen's ideas into their way of looking at stuff. 
Christian church was really good at this. They were really good at like, oh, Romans are doing that. So are we. You know basilica. You know basilica, big church. You know what basilica means in Latin? It means courthouse. Because they took all the old Roman courthouses and turned them into churches. Um, The church didn't assimilate his emphasis uh, on reason so much. They weren't big on reason. The early Christian church was really, really dogmatic. It was a religion. And it was a religion fighting with other religions for dominance. And it's about loyalty, and it's about uh, uh, piety. It's not about, you should never wonder why you are a Christian. There's no Catholics, there's no Protestants, you're just a Christian. Hmm. All right. So much easier when I can do this and look at this like this with the thing and the stuff and the what have you. But it's not letting me. Because it says that picture. Um, Roman philosophy actually focused on the good life. Roman, Roman civilization, we have this notion in, 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 the, in, the, modern, in the modern world that Roman civilization was this. What's the word I'm looking for? Just completely decadent, horrible nasty, unpleasant thing where everybody was, yeah, that's what true. On the other hand, um, Roman, philosophy, Roman, Roman philosophy generally was, if you're a Roman, we don't care where you come from. We don't care what the color of your skin, the language you speak, any of that. We don't care what your religion is, as long as you also accept our religion. This is why Christians didn't get along with Romans. That's why Jews didn't get wrong wrong. It's like, okay, you also have to sacrifice to your religion's great. We have that. That's wonderful. It's very cute. Also, please sacrifice to Zeus. Uh, or sorry, Jupiter. Uh, no, we're not doing that. Well, then we're gonna persecute you. But you could be, if you, you could be a Roman citizen and not speak Latin, you could be a Roman citizen and come from Spain or Carthage or wherever. And once you were a citizen, you could walk. You could walk all throughout Europe and just say, "I'm a Roman citizen," and no one would screw with you because when someone screws the Roman citizen, the Roman army screws with them. So, hacks were man. So, they focused generally on the good life. A lot of their it's sort of like pleasure, relaxing, work hard, play hard kind of thing. Sorry. Um, now, going against that in, in Roman philosophy is Stoicism, a different kind of Roman philosophy, which is, I will just accept my fate. This is how it is. I will do nothing about it. And I'm going to try for a different solution. I can't keep coming over there. Yeah. A wireless mouse. I bought it as a brought it as a backup. Or did I? It's here. You wouldn't believe the amount of stuff I have in this bag. Connect. There you go. Um, so the Stoics, and that comes it comes out of Greek philosophy as well. It's not going to work either. Well, this is just rant. This is. That's uh, probably because that's there. Yeah. Oh, I feel better. I can advance slides again. Uh, you ever heard about people talk about Epicureanism? Epicureans, today we think that those are people that really like food. But Epicurean philosophy was the idea of pain and pleasure. Um, and the idea is to have a middle ground. We were talking the other day about the, the golden means. It's the same sort of idea there. Lucretius. Approach a number of these sort of topics from an uh, Epicurean approach. He did it in an epic poem, which is kind of great. I mean, I used to think about your honors, because this is an epic poem. There he is there. Looks at the kind of guy who writes epic poems.
he talked about the unity of the mind and the body, which is pretty interesting because that goes against the idea of, of dualism we talked about the other day, of mind and body being separate. So the idea of monism versus dualism is an old debate. It's an old debate. But he argued for the unity of mind and body. He also looked at what's called animistic materialism. In other words, something not unlike what we're going to talk about today. Animistic means you can break it down to a point where things are made up of not really atoms, can't think of it quite that way, but you can break stuff down um, to component parts, let's say that. And materialism is the notion that we don't worry about metaphysics, we worry about physics, we worry about stuff that's here. Right? We always think the word, a lot of us think the word materialism meaning buying stuff. That's not really what it means in philosophical, in a philosophical sense. It means I'm a materialist. I, I, I don't worry about the, the, the metaphysical, I worry about the physical, the here and now, the stuff that I can get. But you'll have room for, for human free will because it was hard for anybody back then to say there was no human free will. Talk about sensation, morals. Um, and the evolution of social groups, so the, and the importance of them. But I had a hairy, I think. But a look. It's a good look. It's a good look. All right. Then there's skepticism. Um, skepticism, the first, Roman skepticism is founded by a guy named Kiro, um, who's also, I believe, Greek. There uh, he is. It, it denies radical skepticism, we might call it, or hardcore skepticism, if you want to call it that. Denies that you can actually ever know anything. It says that the only thing you can know is that you don't know anything. Don't believe anything. Right? That kind of idea. It says if you believe, if you, if you, if you take this approach, you're going to have an untroubled existence. And you're not going to be dis disappointed by the fact that your ideas are wrong. I'm not disappointed because I don't believe in anything. And I long for the beliefs that death will bring. <laughs> That's more existentialism comes yeah. after World War II. Um, Jean Paul Sartre, right? See, it's interesting. A lot of these ideas, we have, we we're skeptics today, except that we don't say, I don't believe anything. Today, it's, I don't believe anything until you can prove it to me. There's a difference. Um, the fall of Rome is complicated and it's gradual and it involves you taking a history course, not a history psychology course. Uh, no one really knows quite what happened actually. It probably got too big for itself. Uh, using, there's a whole theory that is bandied about that uh, lead, uh, lead pipes for their water made a lot of them crazy. Um, I'm not sure if by that, though they had lead pipes. You understand, like ancient Rome, there were a million people living in ancient Rome. It's the biggest city in, in the world, easily. It had running water, flush toilet, rich people had flush toilets. There were communal fountains for the running water. Most rich people had running water in their homes, but you could just go get water. There was a justice system that our laws are, our British common law, which our, our law is based on, is based on Roman, on Roman law. You could get a lawyer and you would argue in front of a judge. There were elections <coughs> for a long time and it was the empire. Well, it was a multicultural society, a multiracial society. Oh yeah, there was also slavery. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of ancient societies that didn't have slavery. Judging them as we would today is crazy. But there was an education system. 
um, people that didn't have the sort of lower classes lived in apartment buildings that were about 10 stories high, some of them. Uh, going back and reading things by Cicero and Pliny when I was in high school, he was Latin. Um, he complained, both of them complained the sound of, no, just Pliny, complained about the sound of apartment buildings collapsing at night. They weren't built very well. Um, Julius Caesar complained about how when he was uh, dictator of Rome, uh, and later, well, he never really was emperor, but uh, when, that's the technicality, but he complained about how these kids today, don't, they're lazy, they don't do anything, all they do is go out and paint graffiti everywhere, uh, they don't go to school long enough anymore, they don't want to serve in the army. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Like, I mean, it's exactly, it's the day, right? He also complained about traffic, and there were no parking spots. It's just like today, except what with the slavery and the killing. But you know, like, there were differences. You can't. But you gotta, it's a shame that Rome fell in a lot of respects because it makes you think that they were so advanced, and then it just falls apart. Um, Christian religion early on had a lot of sects uh, because it was early. So church over here might be a little different than church over here in a different town. A lot of different factions. A lot of people yelling heretic at each other. And theological, this is an understatement again, theological. Uh, they didn't always agree. So you have a bishop here and a bishop there, they argue. And they have these big, what we'll call disputations, they would do have debates. Which is kind of great. So eventually, um, the Roman, eventually, it becomes, Christianity becomes the, the state religion of Rome. This does happen. And then you see a melding of the Roman ideas with the Christian ideas. So all this is the Roman Empire. It's all of Europe and much of North Africa. So, Roman Empire collapses. And we start talking about you call it the Middle Ages, you call it medieval uh, time. Uh, you can also switch it just means Middle Ages. Uh, or you can talk about the Dark Ages, but really nobody says that. As I said, no one says that anymore. It's really dark. Like, I have the idea that it was always raining from about 400 till about 1500. It just rained. You know? Um, there was, as I said, some learning. Mostly it was around monasteries. Most was around monasteries. Um, so you get a lot of practical inventions happen, and architecture does move. You get Gothic architecture with flying buttresses, Romanesque architecture with the round arches. Pretty cool stuff. Able to build these great big giant churches, because everybody, everything was done by the church. Everything. You get great things that eventually get the name of the rose, which is a book from this, this last century, but it's still a great book about the medieval. You should read that book. And watch the movie with Sean Connery. It's a spiritually dangerous book. <clears throat> it's a lot of practical stuff happens. Okay. So, but medical stuff. A lot of the records are gone or are ignored of the ancient stuff. So stuff from Galen is just ignored. What did he know? He wasn't Christian. No, seriously, that's the thinking. Aristotle, he couldn't have known anything. wasn't Christian. He's a pagan. We can't trust pagans. Been watching The Last Kingdom. You seen that? You seen The yes. Last Kingdom? Yeah. My wife actually said, you know, I said, I have to two classes tomorrow. I go to bed. She says, I'm watching the finale. So, come fine. I'll watch it myself. I'll just watch it myself. But it's pretty cool. It's that whole time, it's about 850. It's a pretty cool shot. So, knowledge is now based on theological authority, and that's always a good idea. He says sarcastically. Uh, you know, all knowledge shouldn't be based on something that's about dogma. That's not going to work. About, about religion, I guess maybe it makes some sense. Okay. But everything? No. 
Uh, there's a guy that sets the stage for this, a guy's named Tertullian. Now he goes back, this is uh, ancient Rome, early 200s. He's a Christian theologian from then, and he writes stuff basically saying, we should stop questioning things because the church knows everything. And people are like, yeah, that sounds pretty reasonable. The only way you can get an education in the early Middle Ages is you go become a monk. Maybe a nun, but women really shouldn't be educated. That's the thinking then. I don't believe it now. Let's make it perfectly clear. I don't want a committee investigating Okay, St. Augustine, you heard of him, you heard of him, you know, he's a saint. Miracles. Um, so Augustine combines Greek and Christian ideas and philosophical systems today. There he is there. Now, he's, he's talking a little bit about psychology, grief, habit breaking, and his ideas of uh, motivations in, 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 in kids. Interesting stuff. Um, now, he needed... Augustine says you have to have divine illumination to have a mind. That means that God is actually helping you think all the time. Wow. And people are like, that makes sense. <laughs> Sounds good. Today we would go, but we can't, that's a, we, yeah, that's an extra thing. You can't have that. But people didn't think that. You gotta, again, you got to get yourself, one of the important things about history is getting yourself in the mindset, if you can, of someone from then and, and ignore what we know now. That's a hard thing to do. It's a very hard thing to do. Even the most religiously fundamentalist people or fundamentally, I don't know, whatever, I don't know how you pronounce that. Uh, religious people that I've ever met would never say that God's doing all their thinking for them. Right? It's very, like, you're very uncommon. It's not that God sets things in motion and then you perceive it. It's no, 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 no. So God's in here going, I look at that. Hey, check that out. Nice tree idea, right? Like, that's what's going on. But you're not aware of it because it's too complicated for you because it's God. A nice explanation. Way to go, Augustine. I see what you did there. <laughs> I'm not trying to make fun of religion. I'm kind of making fun of people in the Middle Ages. Um, he was against curiosity, doubt, and openness. That's grand. And the world has named universities after him. Um, wow. That's really Middle Ages, early Middle Ages right there, crystallized. Don't learn things. Well, learn things, just do exactly, make everything stay the same forever. That'll work. So you see why the Middle Ages is kind of like, people going, it seems like things were kind of slow for a while. Yeah. Aha. So the only way you can get an education back then is to become a monk. Okay? There really aren't any... There are centers of learning in different places, uh, and there are centers of learning in Africa and the Far East and the Middle East. We wouldn't probably today call them universities. Arguments are made about that, but I don't think we call them universities the way we talk about universities today. So we're into the 1200s here, and Peter Abelard, or Abelard, is an interesting guy. He had an ego the size of France. And he'd go to different towns and debate their top philosophers. He was like a champion philosopher. That's kind of cool. And he said that faith's great. I'm, hey, he's like, I'm Christian. I'm totally faithful. But also reason and doubt are also ways to get to the truth. Okay, that's nice. And he'd go around debating people... And he debates, he finally gets to uh, the Notre Dame um, Cathedral School in Paris. Actually, before the cathedral at Notre Dame is built. But they used to have these things called cathedral schools. And that was basically, it's the precursor to, a, to the modern university. So you've got people 
hanging out at these cathedral schools, and you've got monks and priests teaching. Monks and priests are teaching. So he shows up in this town because he's heard about this woman, Eloise. Now she, like Bono, she's got one name. She's got a last name too. No one called that. She's very famous. She's already famous as like the smartest woman in France. And some accounts say she's as young as 17. It's more likely she's in her early 20s. Either way, pretty impressive. Because this guy, who's like, he's, the, he's like the, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a public intellectual type person today. Like he's famous for being smart. And he shows up and goes, I want to meet her. And he, 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 he kind of he likes her. And I don't mean in a, in, a, in, a, in a just like, I want to hang out with her. So he convinces her father. He says, you know, I could live here and in your house. What do you think of that? Because I could, I could teach your daughter. I can tutor her. You know, I don't know if you know about me. I'm pretty fan. I'm a pretty big deal. Your father's like, okay. Sure. And guess what happens? They start having an affair. Now, he's probably 35, 40, and she maybe is young as 17. She's probably in her it's a little grosser if you think she's 16 or 17. Everything's going great until she gets pregnant. Father, father's like, well, you got to marry her. He's not concerned about, oh, 40 year old man with my 20 year old daughter. He's like, you should marry her. And he's like, well, I can't marry her. That's horrible for my career. Yeah. He finally agrees to a secret marriage. So they'll get married, but they won't tell anybody. Now, see in the eyes of God, no one is So they have a secret marriage, and it's fine. Everything's secret, except the father is pretty proud of the fact that his daughter, look who he's married to. Secretly married to that famous Abigail. This kind of pisses him off. He doesn't trust the father, so he sends. Peter Aviard sends Eloise away to live against her wishes, by the way, to live in a, a convent. Convent? Convent, yeah. yeah like with, with, with convents, with, with nuns. And so, dad's not happy. <laughs> so, uh, dad hires some guys to break into his room and castrate him. So that's what happens. <laughs> so that'll learn. Because it's, it's 1227 or something. That's the kind of thing people used to do. And the police, because there was no police, but if there were, they would have said, I don't know, I don't see anything. Three Sopranos esque, you know? So then he becomes, uh, he, he's depressed, and he becomes a monk. The interesting thing about her is, her writing. Now, you'll say, it's, it, she talks about love. They write letters back and forth. They have a kid, and she, she names the kid Astrolid, which is a navigation instrument. Like, that's so cool. It's like, I'm, I'm a scientist, Dad. I don't name my child GPS. But when I say, from a feminist perspective, you would totally, if you read it today, you would go, that's a feminist perspective. Like, you would see it. It's not like it's feminist for, for, for 1250. She calls marriage prostitution. It's also radical feminist. Um, she says she never wanted to be, she was much more happy being Peter's whore than being his, his wife. Like she wrote this too. It's not like I'm putting any words in the book. The things exist. But she talked about um, how love worked and how men impose things on women. Stuff that, like, we read it today, it's totally, we would not feel like it looks like somebody's blog post from today, except it's written in medieval French. So it's not a lot of blogs written that. But if you were, like, reading a feminist blog, let's say, you would read that, and, oh, yeah, okay, let's see what you're saying, don't agree with it at all, agree with this bit, don't like that bit, but oh, yeah, I see, what, I see where you're coming from. Very modern approach. 
Here they are. And it's a couple. People couldn't draw back then. No, the biggest thing, you notice something? Um, people couldn't do perspective yet. They just couldn't. You can't tell anything from that picture. Everything's flat, right? Many of arts like that. I don't know why. But people had no idea how to paint perspective that comes from the Renaissance. When you see these things, by the way, live, if you go and go to a, an art museum and see some of these things from the early and middle middle ages, paintings like this, and they're just on pieces of wood that somebody's painted, it's really striking because it's like that's a thousand years old. I can touch it. I got a better one. <laughs> better one. I don't want to rub the paint off. So Roger Bacon's another guy. Roger Bacon is a. Uh, oh, this is interesting. An academic. We don't have people that are getting academic jobs. He's at uh, Cambridge. Because Cambridge is one of them old schools. Cambridge and Oxford now have been founded. 1300. There's a college at, at Oxford. When I was at Oxford, I was being on a tour, and someone said, and they said, oh, that's a new college. I said, oh, really? We have a new college. We have a new college at U of T. He goes, oh, when was that founded? I said, 1967. It was 1327. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, that's the new one? <laughs> He talked about a lot of psychological topics, including the nature of human ignorance. They're starting to say that people don't know things and it's okay to find them out. It's okay to find them out. Even if the church doesn't know, go find out. Rather like this for time, things can get you in trouble. So Aquinas, right? Uh, another one of these guys, uh, another famous saint, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, Aquinas was, I think he's Italian. Um, he was committed to the idea of reconciling faith and reason, because this was now becoming a thing in society. Now, again, not for most people in society. Most people were serfs. Most people were just one step up from being slaves, right? But for the noble, educated classes. He went back and looked at Aristotle, even though Aristotle wasn't a Christian. He brought it into the church, tried to reconcile it, kind of neat. Uh, and he talked about sensation and perception. We talked about Aristotle talking about that. He thought, well, well let's figure out how, how our minds work. That's neat. And he said, empiricism's good, rationalism's good, don't be afraid of it. If you're afraid of it, you don't think our faith is true. If our faith is true, what do we have to fear? He makes a strong point, right? It's like, if you're so afraid of these ideas, that means you have doubt. What's the doubt? Right? So Aquinas, I, I, I like Aquinas. A lot of Aquinas in undergrad. So, there's also William Malachan. He's another guy, this uh, monk kind of guy, writing on theory of knowledge. And he comes up with this notion that the simplest explanation is the best. Or we call it today, Occam's razor. And we still use that in science, right? We always say, you have two competing theories, they both do a good job of predicting the data. Which one's the simpler one? Let's go with that. And it's kind of neat because nature is simple in that respect. See, isn't it? That's so, so, what's the word look for? That's so setting nature to us now. Occam's razor. That the idea that no one thought that way up until, and they wrote it down, up until the 1300s in England, seems weird, doesn't it? But there it is. Everything's kind of getting back to normal. And then the plague happens. <laughs> Bring out your dead. That's again, this is another Monty Python Holy Grail reference. I'm not quite dead yet. <laughs> well, whose fault is it that there's a plague? Well, Jews, of course, get blamed for everything. <laughs> so they get blamed for that. So great, 
So first people say, well, obviously it's because there's Jews around. Because that's how people thought. Some people still think that way. They want to make America great again. But, (laughs) (laughs) I say that out loud. I have political opinions, I'm sorry. Sure. Um, But then, (laughs) people started to think a little more and started to say, okay, then again, remember, we're getting a little skeptical, we're getting a little rational, and people said, how did God let that happen? Like, people are dying in the streets. By the way, the plague today, it's, um, you take, like, literally, if you've got a case of ebola plague, which is exceedingly unlikely, but if you've got it, you went to the doctor, they go, eh, I'll pass it over you Like, it's a really easy thing to, to cure. But they didn't have antibiotics back then. So, people died. Lots of people. A third of Europe! It's a lot of people. It slows down this progress a little bit. It's hard to be to have progress when you're wondering if you're going to live till tomorrow. So people start thinking, maybe the church doesn't know everything. Because its explanation for this is uh, probably Jews and, um, I don't know, most of you people are probably bad. A lot of sinning. <clears throat> no, really, that's their explanation. And like people are starting to think, and educated people are starting to think, because the average person's like, well, at least the Jews. But um, educated people, that doesn't seem right. So people decide to have a renaissance. That's not what happened. We didn't really get together and say, you know what we could do? What about a renaissance? There would be a fair, be a renaissance fair. Nothing? Nobody? Um, so the renaissance starts. Basically, people start reading. This really starts to find us reading Aristotle. People start reading the Greek and Roman stuff, mostly the Greeks. People start to travel a little. And again, here, this is people traveling for education. This is the educated class. The average person did not travel. Most of our, uh, most, almost everybody in this room uh, has European ancestry. Anybody in this room that has European ancestry, your ancestors weren't traveling. You know what they were doing? They were eating gruel and, and, and growing oats. <laughs> There's a whole lot else to do. It's unlikely anybody here that comes from that's Boston. It's possible, but it's unlikely. Most people were serfs. The thing is, more people are getting educated, though. And there's more trade, both in goods and ideas. Suddenly you can buy stuff from other places. Now, in ancient Rome, that happened all the time. In the Far East, this happened all the time. But in Europe, this wasn't happening. No one's trading anything. You need a barrel? Well, better go see the barrel guy in the street boat over there, because that's the only place to get barrels. And I wouldn't go out there past the hill. Dragons. (laughs) People lived and died doing exactly the same work their father did with their guys, the same work their mother did because it was being a mom, a housewife, but also, you know, doing a whole bunch of other shit. Never went anywhere. Well, I don't want to leave. I think I'm not to idea. I'm assuming they all talk about that. <laughs> People start questioning and speculating in the educated class. Nation states emerge. Long time the city states. Now we start getting nation states. We get France. We get England. We get the Holy Roman Empire, which is neither holy nor Roman nor, nor an empire, but that's a whole different matter. Basically, Germany. We get these city states, but uh, that expand and get sort of statehood in uh, Italy. We get Spain and Portugal. Oh, then Gutenberg comes along and says, "You know what you can make? You can make a printing press." I just invented it. I'm pretty good. We can use the pre-Bibles. Things work. And then someone says, you know what else we can do? I'm kind of pissed off at something. I'm going to make a little newsletter where it's a little, how I'm pissed off. It's kind of like early podcasting. So it's like blogging. Start making your printing press, you're turning the things out, and you're handing out your handbills. People are learning how to read. Different time, right? It starts to look a little bit more like now. The Tudors is the worst representation ever of the Rubens Renaissance, but it's a great TV show. Um, that's, I shouldn't say it's the worst ever. It's 
Sun, the Tudors. It's about Henry VIII. It's a series of Sun Netflix. Some say it's the Reformation that happens. It's because uh, Martin Luther and other people, including Henry VIII, decides, uh, I don't want to be Catholic anymore because I want to keep divorcing women. And the Pope won't let me. So I'm going to have my own religion. Church of England. By the way, Henry VIII was a real, a real intellectual. He was a really, we think of him today as this buffoonish, fat guy, just always has a chicken leg in his hand. He was older, he was kind of like that. He was so fat. How fat was he? He was so fat that they had to build like a crane thing to help him up and put him in bed. But in his earliest, he was younger. He was vigorous and really smart. And also, he was against the Reformation, against Protestantism. So a lot of people say, oh, Protestantism comes along and it changes everything. But the Protestant churches were no better than the Catholic Church with the, we're always right. We also burn people at the stake, so there. So I'm not so sure. I, I see a lot of sources saying that we get a lot of credit for the Reformation. But I don't buy that so much. That means my, my bias of religion in general. I guess in a grand scheme sort of way, it could be that, look, oh, look, you can question something. But, I don't know. I don't know. Which is? What's your name? Oh, my pictures? Mm-hmm. No. Is that something else? That means to be really. What is it? What is that? College advisor. You've got a lot of time. Astronomers are starting to look at evidence of, of, of the sky. Um, basically, at old European universities, you studied astronomy, uh, critical thinking, uh, music, and philosophy. That was your four, that was your core courses, and there were no levels. <laughs> so that's what you said. Ptolemy was he's an ancient Egyptian. So the, 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 the universe is centered on the earth. Uh, humans, therefore, are the center of existence. Human history is the history of the universe. Right? That's And that, again, he comes up with this well before the birth of Christ, so that's okay. Copernicus, um, who's a Polish guy, says, yeah, except for the fact that it doesn't fit the data. You know, if it's the data better, sun center, we going around it. Right? There's, oh, by the way, there's no way his actual name was Copernicus. He just wrote in Latin. People Latinized their names and they wrote stuff. Almost all academic work was done in Latin up until the 18th century, 19th century. Like, in university, you just... You have to wrote all your papers in Latin. The world changed, which is probably good. It's harder. It's actually easier. And then Kepler comes along, refines Copernicus, and he talks about elliptical orbits. Um, and then Galileo refines the telescope. That's when you got the reference there. Um, he challenges all the assumptions of the church. He also, like, for the longest time, the church said heavier things drop faster than light things. Heavy things drop faster than light things. And that's not true. Everything drops at the same speed, right? That's how gravity works. But he said, that doesn't work that way. I've done experiments. The church said, well, we'll have to know that. We'll have to know that. See, that's how pervasive the church was. The church was like, well, uh, we know a little bit about acceleration of objects. No, apparently you don't. <coughs> and he gets in a lot of trouble. It wasn't just a conflict about cosmology and how, how the universe worked in physics. This was about epistemology, about knowledge. Does the church have a stranglehold on it, or can we learn things ourselves? And the church is, remember I talked about argument from authority, the church was like, yeah, we're the church. Uh, I read the Bible, you know, print Bibles and give them first of all, like those Protestants. Uh, and secondly... Hello, would of God, I interpret, you listen. Because that's how most of your priests talk, right? 
Who's your top priest? They force Galileo to recant his views. There's this myth that he then says, but it, alas, it still moves. If he said that, he would have been drawn in court. There's no freaking way that happened. Um, but people now are starting to talk about, again, educated people, the natural world, and talk about and challenge the church. And this is a huge thing in the history of knowledge. Predictable and lawful and quantifiable things. And that really starts in astronomy, but then people start to see it in other places too. So the idea of the extrinsic teleology kind of goes away. And remember, that's the one that says it comes from somewhere else. It comes from God. By the way, all these people that are challenging these things, they're all Christians, by the way. They're all religious people. The idea of being an atheist back then was something, if you were, you didn't say it out loud, and no one was anyway. It just didn't happen. So psychological thought in the Renaissance includes, um, it's, there's not much, frankly. Um, Petrarch is a guy who starts studying Greek. Uh, he's Tuscan, I think. Might have been. Doesn't matter. But he starts thinking about. He's the founder of humanism, and humanism is the idea that we can rely on our senses, we can rely on our reason to figure things out. So he invents that, which is a a pretty modern thing, and he's doing this in the 1400s. Machiavelli, who you've probably heard of. Uh, Machiavelli, of course, was a... Uh, what was he? I think he was the Doge of Venice. Doge? Yeah. And not, not much, you know, it wasn't like that, that, that dog. Mean. It means Duke. But he also did... Uh, and you got to understand, like I said about people that were educated, they, they learned all this stuff. So he was a politician. We talk about things being Machiavellian today. Basically, that's screwing the other guy. And he wrote a whole book on screwing the other guy. Yeah. And unlike, say, Donald Trump, he wrote his book. But he also talked about a lot of other things. He wrote on all kinds of different things. So he talked a little bit about human behavior and rejected moralistic approaches. It's not about morals. It's about getting stuff done. That was Machiavelli. And basically, in essence, Machiavelli is just get it done. Um, a lot of people view a guy named Juan Luis Vives as the founder of modern psychology. I'm a, not so sure people in Spain sure do, because he's from Spain. He talks about, though, things like emotions. And he talks about relating physical to psychological. So, you know, let's give him some credit. He wasn't doing experiments, really. There he is. Nice hat. It's a good look. So he talked about object- emotions objectively in bodily terms. What are you actually doing to your body? What does it feel like to be angry? What does it feel like to be... When what's happening in your body? He talked about associationism. It should sound familiar. Aristotle, all these guys, right? But So he's thought of today, especially in Spain, as the father of psychology. I don't know if I buy that, but um, I wouldn't call him a scientist. Secular approach to education, including education for women. Don't let the church do it. Let's have universities be independent of the church. Now, again, this is, they could say, oh, wow, well, I guess he must have been really a guy for equal opportunity for women. Well, of course not. It's like 14 something. No, 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 no. He also he said, he said things like women shouldn't be uh, out with their, 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 their mate. Their husband, whoever's you know, the, 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 who they're courting, because uh, that shows that you know that shows weakness. Like you have to a woman. He was, you know, he was, and that's the style of the time. You have to understand that. So he wasn't, he, he wasn't Eloise, right? He wouldn't read, look at him and go, "Oh, feminist." You wouldn't read his stuff and go, "Like Justin Trudeau." No, you wouldn't do that. 
So Da Vinci also was one of these guys, you know, inventing things. Um, he did some important stuff. He also painted Mona Lisa. Like he had a few things. He had some skills. But he did some important things for us. Also worked with the assassins against the Templars. Um, does anybody play Assassin's Creed besides me? Okay. He actually had an accurate anatomy done of the visual system. And at this point, people started adding optics as one of the core courses you take in the university of the A lot of the early work on optics is done in the Middle East, but um, there was a, a, a prohibition on dissecting animals, so nobody got a good view of inside. There wasn't that prohibition, of course. It was. So visual perception and descriptions of the variety of emotions and facial expressions, he did that too. He also invented the helicopter, you know, something. He was great. Vinci was amazing. It's one of these one of those once in a couple of centuries minds. Not a lot of those guys out there. Okay, a few other people. Um, Louis Sabuco, uh, Catalonian, I think maybe. Physical psychological consequences of the passions. Again, she's looking. So that's basically looking at emotion and its connection to physiological things. That's cool. Um, she talked about intellectual processes, but she treated emotions as being a central human thing. So she's like, animals don't have the same emotions we do, and our emotions guide our intellect. That's neat. Different. And Juan Huarte, hope I'm pronouncing that properly, he looked at individual differences in aptitude, uh, things like intelligence. He, of course, attributed these to differences in the humors. The humors, by the way, are, um, let's see, a blood, a black bile, yellow bile, and uh, what's the, what's the one? And phlegm. That's right. Oh, I see that you're a little angry today. Probably a little too much black bile. Medical science has advanced so much, we now know that that's a ridiculous idea. More likely, it's a toad or a troll living in your stomach. Um, <laughs> that is a Saturday Night Live reference from 1976. There's no way that you got that. Okay, so some conclusions about, about this era, and then we can talk about the day. Um, first of all, that was quite a bit of history. We're now up to about 1600, and we started at 700 BC. So we're, we're moving fast. It's going to slow down. Um, the, 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 one of the reasons intellectually, with intellectual history and history psychology moved so quickly is that there was a long time when literally nothing happened. No one cared about these things, or if they did, they were too frightened of what could happen to them to say anything, right? Um, the church was really important in the dissemination and also the constriction of knowledge. And universities start to rise up. And that's the thing is here, you start to get to the point where we actually have, many of these people I talked about at the end there were actually university professors. By the way, you know when you read the convocation, the person walks in with a big mace? You know what the mace represents? Um, the convocation ceremony we have is based on, on almost all convocation ceremonies. It's based on the convocation at Oxford. And the convocation at Oxford, the person walks in, walks into the mace because they used to go into the real mace. You know, like the thing that's round and it has spikes on it and it's for killing. <laughs> and the reason they had that was because students handed papers and like, nah, I can't. <laughs> the reason they had that is there were it's to commemorate riots that happened, pitched battles between they were called town and gown riots between the people that lived in Oxford and the people that were at Oxford University, because they didn't like the students and the professors. And they thought and it was some theological things too. So they actually cut battles. So if you ever think that people, when people say, damn students, it was harder back in the day. Any questions about that stuff? I don't know it's a lot of stuff.
magician and he sawed me right through He said he had enough love to satisfy two Now if you were me and you were two, what would you do? Would you take twice the love or would you get up the glue? Remember the wagons when they pulled into town? You could see the big top four miles around Among the carnival freaks he stood out like a clown And from his top hat he pulled a wedding gown Hey, hey, what you gonna do? You can't love me and another one too you gonna say when the cat's away the rats are gonna play he had a house of cards hidden up his sleeve two hearts on the wall and a color tv he was pulling white rabbits from behind my ear and in the Appeared. Soon we gave birth to a tiny wolf boy He was a hairy freak, but a bundle of joy Had a circus bark much worse than his bite Howling through his crib by the full moonlight Hey, hey, what you gonna do? You can't love me and another one too Hey, hey, what you gonna say when the cat's away the rats are straitjacket and then in the trunk with a chain and another chain and all the padlocks and then he forgot about me for a few days and to make matters worse there were bunnies everywhere and I could never find my scarves and so I took his wand and with a flick of my wrist he was the last thing to disappear Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures in Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music; they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.